0: behind us. So let's read, and then we'll pray and get cracking. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love Is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Heavenly Father, we join with the psalmist, we join with David's words, and we say, Let your glory be here. Let your glory be amongst us as we gather to hear from you and to worship you. Let your glory be in Derby and in the Midlands and in the UK. And in every nation, under the sun, we say, let your glory come, let your kingdom come, and your will be done. Amen. So, for those of you who are familiar with this psalm, you won't need much introduction. But for some of us, perhaps, we might not be so familiar with the context. So, this psalm was written by David the future king of Israel, who, when tending his father's sheep, saw off and killed lions and bears. Not only that, but perhaps his most famous deed of faith was to take down the Philistine champion, those enemies of Israel, Goliath, who he slew with a sling. This David, the future king of Israel, is in a cave. It's not where you might expect to find him. At this moment on time, he's a man on the run. He's a fugitive fleeing for his life. And here's the situation: Saul had been anointed and appointed as Israel's first king. And it seemed to start off pretty brightly for him. But in one particular moment, he turned back from following God and from following his commandments. And The result of that was, a very condensed result, was that God rejected him as king. David, meanwhile, slays Goliath, brought into King Saul's court, and is eventually appointed the man in charge over Israel's armies. In a nutshell, David's success starts to anger Saul, and he starts to become fiercely jealous of him. And ultimately, in fact, violently, he tries to skewer him with a spear. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now, at this point, if I was David, I probably would have done a runner already. But he doesn't. He stays. He tries to be faithful and loyal. And uh, we we, heard about, or we hear about uh, David's singing and playing of the lyre it seems to soothe this this jealous spirit that is, is in Saul. Um, but ultimately... When we read in one Samuel, when Saul saw that David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him, he stood in fearful awe of him. So this, this awe and this fear and this jealousy consumes Saul, and he tries to set David up to fail. But David, because the Lord is with him, ends up being even more successful than anyone else. And eventually this jealousy reaches such a, a kind of a, a fever pitch, such a boiling point, uh, that David is forced to flee. From a cave to a city, then to another cave, then to another city. And in this psalm in particular, he's in one of those caves. So I imagine many of us at that point would have empathised with David if his recorded words would have been something more like, Ah! Help! Or, this is awful! That would have been a very natural reaction, wouldn't it? But let's look a bit more closely. We've read it once. Let's look a bit more closely at how he reacts. He's a wanted man. His life is in mortal danger. What does he do? To borrow a phrase from one of my North American friends, he gets his praise on. It's a little bit like saying, the armies are closing in. His foes are all around him, like, whoa, steady on chaps, steady on men. I'm just going to get the liar out. The liar was a forerunner of a guitar. Just hang a minute. I'm just going to get out my guitar defies earthly logic, doesn't it? We'll see why he does this. Because the fact is, this isn't just a sing-song around a campfire. This is battle perspective, battle strategy, and strength for the battle being sought. Sounds a little bit intense, doesn't it? It's a summer Sunday. Why don't we just chill out a bit, take it a bit easy. Why have you chosen this one? Well, being totally honest, hand on heart, I felt that this was the sign I was being prompted to do, so I'm just seeking to be obedient. And the second thing is, the reality is that we might not be in a battle right now. But, well, unless maybe your conversations about what we're going to put on the barbecue later kind of got out of hand. But the reality is, we are going to be at some point, aren't we? That's not me just sort of saying doom and gloom. We are going to be in a battle at some point. That's life, especially as we uh, walk out the Christian journey. So what I want to encourage this morning is to be a bit squirrel-like in our mentality. If there is something that is true and beneficial for you this morning, just grab hold of it and store it away for for the future, for when you do face that battle. So the first uh, thing we're going to do is we're going to look at these verses clumped together in a few sections. And we're going to see how David sees the bigger picture, verses 1 to 3. You can see here that he's looking at the situation not with his physical eyes, because let's face it it's probably going to be pretty gloomy in the cave but with eyes of faith. Although his soul sorry, although his body is in the cave, he places his soul under the care and under the protection of the Lord Almighty. He's seeking that divine protection. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Now this metaphor of sheltering the shadow of your wings, much as uh, chicks would shelter under the wings of a hen, is found in multiple times in the Psalms, in the book of Ruth, and in the New Testament in uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So that's the first thing that uh, we see from the psalm that we need to do. We need to seek protection in the refuge of the one who provides eternal protection. But that, that's not always the first thing we do, is it? Sometimes Unlike Theo, as Lucy illustrated in the picture this morning, sometimes we run to other people first, rather than reaching to our parent, rather than reaching to our Father God. And sometimes we just we don't actually reach out help from anybody, but it's God or people. Sometimes we just keep on running, and we kind of drain ourselves in this emotionally exhausting situation, just trying to flee from it, flee from it. Ah. At some point, we've got to bring ourselves to a stop, We've got to seek rest and refuge in the one who can truly protect us. The other thing we see from these open verses is that with those eyes of faith that David has, he knew it was a temporary crisis. In verse 1 he says, till the storms of destruction pass. He knew that it was a storm, and that a storm, however ferocious or destructive, it will run its course. It has a finite duration. And he also knew that God's faithfulness is not dependent on his circumstance. I'll say that again God's faithfulness is not dependent on our circumstances. He was pursued, he was hunted. But he doesn't focus on the situation in front of him. But he remembers that God has a plan for his life. Verse 2, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And I have to ask myself the question, and I have to ask you the question. Do we always respond to times of pressure with such perspective? Maybe it's difficulties at work that you're encountering. When, we're, when you're under duress, or you just feel like you're being squeezed from all sides. I just want to be clear, I'm not talking about problems that are essentially of our own making. So for example, you know, oh, work are always on my case, oh yeah, but I am always late pretty much every day. <laughs> I'm not talking about those, or, now my family are such a nightmare, but you're never making the effort to contact them or to be reconciled to them. I'm just talking about those times when those situations just seem unjust, where you've done the right thing, and yet you're still under the cosh. So maybe it's the boss who just seems to have it in for you regardless, or it's the colleagues who are groundlessly hostile. We've got to be like David, and we've got to remember they are not the final authority. You see, God Most High is able to use our times of oppression from people not to depress our emotions, but to shape our character so that we learn to seek help from him. We were never intended to do life on our own. At once, or never ever. When Adam walked through the garden, he walked before, before he fell, and before man fell in him. He walked with the Father, and they, and they talked and conversed in the cool of the evening. That is what we're intended. We're intended to have that close relationship to God. But this process, when other people are bringing us heat, are bringing us pressure, can actually be the part of the process that God uses to refine our faith. And our faith, you know, we we read elsewhere in Scripture that our faith is described as more precious than gold. Well, precious metals, I'm given to understand, they're not always just found. Sometimes they have to be smelted. It's immensely satisfying word to say. They have to be smelted. That means they need to be returned to intense heat over and over again. And that removes the impurities. God the Father is so, as Izzy started off this morning, saying he's, he's concerned about our hearts and he's concerned about our faith. And it's so precious to him that he wants to remove what is impure, which might hold us back from him. And to make us more and more like his son. So I want you to say this with me. You going to be a little bit interactive. I may be being smelted. I may be being smelted. Be being smelted. One more time. Okay, and I just want that. If, if anything lodges in your mind from this morning, the next time you're going through a situation that seems unjust or unfair, just remember that. Hey, okay, this is happening to me, but maybe God has a purpose in it for me, and maybe He's using it to refine my faith and to remove impurities and to make me more like Him. So, he recognizes God's sovereignty. David knows that God's in control above all of the situations he faces, and then he remembers God's rescue. Verse 3, he will send from heaven and uh, save me. But how is it? How is it that he is so confident that God will do that? There doesn't seem to be a single trace of doubt in his mind. It's not, he will probably save me, or... I'm quite expectant, I've got, I've got faith that he will. There's no doubt. I, he will send from heaven and save me. And I suggest that David is recalling his track record with God, or rather, he recalls God's track record of faithfulness towards him. You know, as we've considered already, he's been in some really perilous situations. He's faced lions, bears, the giant Goliath. And what he found was that when he was out on a limb, God prevailed. He knew the nature of God, but he didn't just know what God was like. He had specific moments in his life, testimonies, where God had made him victorious. And I've got to ask the question, can we say the same? If we don't feel like we have those moments of victory or breakthrough, why not ask God for them? That was, that was at the heart of what the invitation that, that Lucy felt God was showing. Lucy and Heidi, I'll refer to in a moment, what she bore. They had no idea what, I'm, what I was preparing. And it's just wonderful, isn't it, when sort of God speaks on a theme. So reach out to God and ask him if you've not had that victory or that breakthrough. Because sometimes he's going to reveal his breakthrough for you in situations that look the most bleak from the outside. But God isn't really a God who looks at the outside. He looks within. And if you have experienced moments like this in your life, and there's many of us here in this room who've been walking with Jesus for years and years, then I want to say to you, call them to mind. Use them to fuel your faith for the next valley time. I think sometimes, myself included, we can be a little bit amnesia as Christians, can't we? We sometimes just just forget, but it's because we're not flexing our memory, we're not flexing that muscle to call to mind, well, actually yeah, I'm in a tough time now, but actually I remember a time when I called out to God and he just did the most marvellous thing that I'd never expected and, and he resolved this situation. And peace was there and reconciliation was there and provision was there. So, coming back to David. We know him now as a hero of the faith, but what made him heroic was that he had taken the word of God, he would hid it in his heart. He'd done that beforehand, before the battle. But in the moment of the battle, he believed it and he was obedient to it. This is why he was so convinced that Goliath and the Philistines were an affront to God. We read in 1 Samuel, you have defied the armies of the living God. He stands up to Goliath because he wants all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel And then he says that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That's chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. You know, the battle is the Lord's. So if you are in a time like this, or when you are, he might not rescue you in the way you think, but call out to him and expect that provision and expect that protection. Because the battle belongs to him. Just in case this is sounding a bit overly in that battle fighting. I just gotta ask you this. Who else was commended for doing exactly that? For treasuring up the words spoken to them and hiding them in their heart? Who's that? Mary. Mary. Mary, spot on. You see, this applies to whether this is whether this is David or whether this this was Mary. You know, when God speaks, if we're obedient to that, there is great reward. So, let's return to the cave. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our circumstances, yet he may use our circumstances to demonstrate his faithfulness. And this was the attitude of heart that David had, which was all more impressive considering what was facing him. Lions, fiery beasts, teeth of spears and arrows, tongues of sharp swords. It sounds like, it starts to sound like a monster out of Greek myth and legend, doesn't it? Next we'll be expecting hair writhing like snakes and and that sort of thing. But this visual imagery is actually really helpful because it gives us a glimpse into, firstly, David's emotions at the time. He was finding it tough. You know, these were significant foes that he was facing. And as readers after the event, we could fall into the trap of thinking that maybe he was just some uber spiritual guy and nothing fazed him, he just kind of sailed through life untroubled. But as it says there, you know, he was facing terrifying opponents. We might at risk of maybe underestimating just how severe or just how life threatening the position was in. Now, commentators speculate that maybe the, the fiery, the use of the fiery there, refers to the lake of fire that awaits those enemies of God and of God's people, uh, or maybe just their volatile nature. But either way, these horrific creatures, they're people. It's the children of man. People's words can grievously hurt. You know, the fact that he refers to tongues as sharp swords. And the mouth, which can be used to smile and welcome, here is full of spears and arrows, and that's that really underlines just how strongly his enemies desired David's death. And he'd been pursued again and again and again, hounded from place to place to place. This wasn't just a misunderstanding, and then Saul and he sort of you know patched it all up, made it together. Saul is intent. He's made it his purpose. If you read it, it's, it's kind of... Well, it is. It's, it's horrifying. Just how much, just how, not to not to use this phrase lightly, just how hell-bent Saul is on David's death. He's, that seems to be, never mind governing a kingdom of people, it seems to be that like David's David, death what he's focused on. So how does David respond? Does he respond in kind? Does he use his tongue to whip, to berate, to lash out? Does he seek and pray for their destruction? No. Let's see what he does. In verse 5, he chooses to praise and magnify God. Under acute and severe pressure, he lifts up glorious praise. Elsewhere in the Bible we read that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What, What a wonderful picture of an illustration of what David's heart is like. He's under most acute, severe pressure. And he lifts up glorious praise. Because we read in verse 6, this is all the more remarkable, that their enmity isn't just threatened, isn't just spoken, but it's, it's acted out. They sought to trap him, to ensnare him. He's not in denial. You know, he says, my soul was bowed down. So, oh, Feeling the weight of it. But again... He chooses to look up rather than inwards. Reason being, David, to cope with the situation with these besieging people, he's got a better plan. There's gonna be a couple more BPs, it just seems to flow that way. So his better plan is this. Rather than retaliating or lashing out, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. Does he say, Oh, pity me, this is so terrible? No. Praise him. Verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. Now, M People, they famously sang, and I've been told not to try and do the voice, of Heather Small, as much as I really want to. Izzy can do it better than me, anyway. She's my wife. She can do it better than me. But uh, the, the lyric is, it's really hard not to do the voice. <laughs> it's go a on, Sunday. On. You have to search for the hero inside yourself. <laughs> Thank you You can have a bit of fun. It's pretty heavy. It's in a cave. She's cowering embarrassment. Um, but that lyric, you've got to search for the hero inside yourself, it's a great song, isn't it? It's, what, it's just got great song, great rhythm. But as advice, it's tosh. It really is. You know, a block of marble cannot see the sculpture that it will become. It's the craftsman who chisels it out, who brings the statue out. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So like David, we've got to learn to trust the one who will use our experiences to shape us and our faith. We've got to trust and respond in a godly way. You see, the thing is, you might remember, that David actually had the chance to kill Saul. At one point, Saul comes into the cave where David is, and he has the chance, and all he does is cut off a bit of Saul's robe. His friends say, kill him, kill him, and all he does is cut. And then David, he actually feels terrible about cutting off the corner of the robe, but that's an aspect of the story for another time. Um, and what he says is he actually says, he, then, he actually then goes out to Saul's just leaving the cave, and he says, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. What does he do? He leaves it to God. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. That's what he says to Saul. And Saul is staggered. He's blown away. He says, you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. If you want to, you can read more about that in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. But David's choice to leave it to God to avenge the wrong done to him, and not to retaliate, he gives Saul a taste of grace. He foreshadows how Jesus will respond to his false accusers, to those who ultimately put him to death. And I just want to encourage you that this is how we've got to respond, if we are maligned, spoken ill of, or if we find ourselves in danger. Not to take matters into our own hands, but to trust that God will avenge. You see, trust involves a conscious choice of the mind and a declaration from our heart that we will not let it be overcome by the waves that could swamp us. He says, my heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. He's reasserting. He's reasserting the fact that he believes And he's saying to his heart, no, 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 God has a bigger purpose than what I'm currently facing. I've got to ask, how is he able to do that? How is he holding on? I think it's the culmination. It's the fruit of what we've seen before. Perspective, history, actively placing trust in God. It's become a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, as we read in Hebrews. David's holding fast to the hope set before him. And I expect you know people like that, don't you? Perhaps part of us here in Jubilee, or maybe in your own situation where you're from, those people who just seem really grounded, really unshakable, even when they're being buffeted. It's not that they don't go through storms, they do experience them. But when they do, they just don't seem overwhelmed, they don't seem like they're going to be in danger of being capsized by them. What we've got to think about is, is, how is that possible? How do trees, for example, endure storms? if we think of the news footage of the aftermath of a storm, there may be one or two trees that have gone down and never fallen onto a car here or taken out a fence panel there. But it's not like every tree throughout the country is scattered across the ground like matchsticks. It's not like that, is it? It's just the odd tree here or there. And the reason for that is because those trees are rooted. Their roots go down deep. Yeah, they are seeking life for water and growth, but they also serve to anchor them, so that they can weather the storms. And I just want to say to you that we need help to do that, and that is being part of the local church. You know, we can all use phrases like this, and you know, I think I must have said this in years gone by, you know, I moved to this place, but I, I didn't really put down roots, so I just want to say to you, whether that's here, you're so welcome as part of Jubilee, or whether that's in your own home situation, make sure you put down roots in the word of life and in your faith by being part of a community of believers. So, is steadfast in thinking and in governing his emotion. He knows it's not just head knowledge. He's doing his proverbs, exhorts us to do. Above all else, keep your heart. Or above all else, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. See, it's so vital. He sees the situation before him uniquely with a heavenly perspective. And in doing so, that enables him to lift his emotions, and he runs with it. I just, For me, I almost imagine it like the, the flow of faith being like a trickle. It starts in his mind as he perceives it. And it trickles down and and starts to uh, flow down into his heart and the seat of his emotions, it's also known as. Where others would have maybe seen those obstacles, you know, the boulders, the, the enemies, the traps, the danger. He's seeking faith to flow in. God, I'm turning to you. I'm crying out to you. You have a purpose for me. My enemies are around me. Now at this point, had he begun to do what? many of us might be inclined to do, to mope or or to pity himself. It would have been like introducing poison into that spring of life. If it starts to say, oh, isn't it terrible? What's going to happen to me? How will I make it out? Will I be protected? It will start to taint everything. And in all likelihood, it could have affected the outcome of the situation. Another translation of Proverbs says that Guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. I've not read that particular translation of it in that way before, and that really struck me. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Those ifs, maybe in our own situation. Oh, if only that hadn't happened to me, or how will I make it through, or what? I mean, you get the picture. But those introspective worries, feeling sorry for ourselves, to such an extent that it becomes self-pitying, can actually affect the direction of... That our lives take us, not just how we feel about it. So, what do we need to do? Faith is trickling down. We're seeing that God has a bigger plan. We reassert our trust in what he's doing, despite our enemies around us. What does David do next? He erupts in praise. Awake, my glory. I will sing and make melody. Just in case that's, that seems a bit awkward. Oh, Getting a bit carried away with it. But, well, it's all right. There are multiple exclamation marks in Scripture. We can get excited because David certainly is. There's five accounts. One passage, a few verses, five exclamation marks. You know, awake my glory can also be understood as awake my whole being. I will awake for the dawn. I think he's going to make some noise there. I was thinking how, going back to a couple of different shared house situations, that I was in, either studying or working um, before Isabel and I were married. And I think sometimes you know, I wake up you know, for my quiet time. It's a really unhelpful term, actually, sometimes, isn't it? A quiet time. Because then it's all implies, oh We've got to be quiet. I think that's fine, actually. And my rationale was that I was being considerate to other people who maybe wouldn't be quite so thrilled about hearing me belt out, off tune, out of key, um, you know, worship numbers, classics at the o'clock in the morning. But actually, whilst that's okay at times, it can actually be really uh, non-suitable, really unsuitable for certain situations that we find ourselves in. There are times that we've got to get passionate. We've got to throw wide the shutters of our hearts and let the spirit blow on the embers of our faith. Amen. They've got to rage again with a. a passion and a fierce fire, not one that will blow out tomorrow, but with a sustained fire as the Spirit brings to life our trust that we're placing in God. And I've got to suggest, it may be necessary to do that more often than we are doing currently. You see, it's not the case here that David is just waiting for the collective gathering when he gets his mighty men together, sorry, when he gets his band of fugitives together at this stage. That's what they were. Uh, and says, "Okay, you know, let's worship and seek God together." There's an indication here that there is an individual responsibility. It's right that we gather, that we here and now gather on a Sunday and make a great sound, led by our musicians. But there's an individual responsibility. I will awake the dawn. My soul, my whole being, I will sing. We've got to do this. David is building himself up. He's bringing courage into his soul. And Nehemiah would write several hundred years later, the joy of the Lord is my. Yeah, say it with some strength. The joy of the Lord is my All right. So we've got to do that. And sometimes there are situations where we need that we need to it's not enough to wait. We need to bring courage in. He's on the run. He's in danger. This is what he receives. As he praises and magnifies God. As he lifts God up, he is lifted up. He is strengthened as he finds joy in God. And so can we. so must we. We've got to. I forgot to start my stopwatch. How are we time? Already? Christ. Okay. I'll speed up a little bit. I've got a bit carried away. What we've got to say is that it's more than that. Okay? It's not just that. David's faith and rescue isn't actually the main point here. There's a lot we can learn from him and imitate him in how he deals with these situations. But it's more than just helping us, here and now, to be conformed to the likeness of God. The resounding pinnacle of the psalm is that God would be glorified. Not David, and um, by inference ourselves, as we seek to apply David's wisdom to our lives, but God. He knew that God's purposes extended beyond his personal rescue and his deliverance from the situation. Matthew Henry puts it like this. When David was in the greatest distress and disgrace, he did not pray, Lord, exalt me, but Lord, exalt thy name. Is that true for us? Are we consumed with our own protection, our personal deliverance, or are we more obsessed with his exaltation, His glorification. The world, secular thinking will say, ah, but you've got to look after number one. And what I suggest is we say as Christians, okay, we will. We're going to look after number one to the one who comes first in our lives, to the one who's seated not just on the throne of heaven, but the throne of our hearts. And that countercultural, and that is against what secular thinking, thinking without God, would have us do. But the fact is, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because you see, in turning to him, as David exemplifies here, God gets the glory. And in response, in sending from heaven, God gets the glory. In revealing his nature, a creator with the heart of a father, rescuing his created children, God gets the glory. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In a rescue, there's a focus on who was rescued. Now we think of the the boys who were in the cave, and we we we're so thankful that they were brought out safely after what an ordeal. And there was focus on them. But how much more attention and praise? should the rescuers receive. Because they're the ones who risk life, and then expert divers were there they were, to go in and do that, to bring them out. Without them, there would be no rescue. So, we're no longer number one in our own lives. We're no longer centre stage. He calls us out of our self-centred, self-involved plagues, and into his epoch-spanning, world-encompassing, meta-narrative. It's the vision that God has when he declares, sorry, that David has caught when he declares, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Because millennia, before it's unveiling, he's seeking the burgeoning promise. Now, I'm in danger of stretching the BP thing a little bit far here, but I just wanted to have something that might sort of lodge in your minds. Now, burgeoning is another word for growing or increasing rapidly uh, and flourishing. As for the promise, let your glory be over all the earth. Where have we as New Testament believers heard that before? Matthew 28, maybe? That's what, that's what reminded me of. It. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see, as we make disciples, he will be glorified. As we bring more and more people into uh, situations where they can exalt him, to know by grace a personal relationship with an intimate Father God, the living God, to help them see him, see God prevail and move in response to prayer, to witness him sending out his steadfast love and faithfulness, God's glory will spread. As his kingdom advances, his glory will spread. Because the fact is, he has, once and for all time. Now, David was confident because he knew God's nature and history of faithfulness in his personal life. But we, here and now, we can be thoroughly assured because God has sent from heaven. He revealed his son. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We can have the confidence that David had he will save us, because he has saved us, and he will go on saving us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. As we read the article. So we're coming in close now, and I just want to ask us this final question. How was it that David went from cowering in a cave to expecting his rescue and God's glorification? I think the truth is, if this is a, a fair interpretation of it, is that although his body was in the cave, his heart, his mind, his trust was in heaven. So how can we go, whether it's at the moment, or whether it's in situations in the how can we go from cowering in a cave to celebrating this covenant love? We'll do just as David did. We've got to remind ourselves to see the bigger picture. We've got to know that there is a better plan, a better battle plan for dealing with those besieging people. And we've got to trust in the Virgin Promise. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk alone on any Sunday morning.